Listening to Climate Champions, a podcast from the Architects Journal. I'm Hattie Hartman, Sustainability Editor at the Architects Journal. And I'm Hattie's co-host, George Morgan, Director of 1.5 Architecture. It's a very, very complicated thing the sustainability of the world. Every single project for me is different and I try to assess what the sustainability means for this particular project. And that means timber is not the best solution all the time. Concrete is not the best solution all the time. Steel is not the worst, you know, the situation all the time. It's all have its own balance. Today, our guest is Jay Ahn, founding director of Studio Weave, and part of the AJ's 40 Under 40 cohort, which celebrates the UK's emerging talent. Studio Weave is known for its carefully crafted work across a range of sectors, from timber pavilions to schools, and more recently, a multi-award winning extension to an Edwardian library in Waltham Forest, high-profile public realm projects in the City of London, social housing and new public realm around Hackney Wick Station, and a clifftop home in South Korea. It's also important to note that since 2015, Studio Weave has shared office space with Architecture Zero Zero, with whom they frequently collaborate. Both practices are known for their razor focus on social engagement as a lens through which they approach their work. We've invited Jay onto the podcast as a follow-on to episode 41, primarily to hear more about the ins and outs of timber sourcing and how the practice went about creating a supply chain of timber from felled trees from London streets and parks for its recently completed Lee Valley Library Pavilion. So Jay, it's great to have you with us today. Let's start with the Waltham Forest Library Project, which is an extension to a grade two listed building. How did that project come about? Well, thank you for the invitation. So how did the project come about? It was a competition. It was tendered out as a a Greater London Authority GLA's framework. And we were selected as a shortlist of practices uh, which uh, in being invited to submit the proposal. Luckily, we, we won. And our proposal was actually quite simple. The site contained a number of existing trees which have been there for far longer than I've been on this earth, which I have huge respect for. The building has been there, again, far longer than um, I've been on this earth, which I have huge respect for. And the quite growing community concern around areas change because it's designated as a, a massive development area that the face of the neighbourhoods will completely change. So our project was really about the looking at the concerns and the site constraints and how we can navigate as simply as possible, as light touch as possible. And I use word delight quite often, as delightful as possible for the users to encounter the one you know is complete. So it's really great to be able to visit one of the buildings we're talking about on the podcast, because often they're in Oxford or Bangladesh or wherever. 
So I cycled up on Friday to have a look at the Leebridge Library. What were some of the constraints of the site? It looks like you've gone to great lengths to protect the existing trees that you referred to. Oh, these trees are quite magnificent and a large size. They were probably planted a little earlier than library, I think. These trees are um, a London plains and, and also lime tree, which is quite a rare site of this scale um, on this quite relatively constrained residential site. And what we didn't know is how their roots has been grown for over hundreds of years of they've been occupying this place. And I mean, for me, they are the resident. We don't want to evict the residents and worse to to kill the resident. <laughs> I should not be saying that out loud. But anyway, the what we have done is we wanted to have to create an environment that have a best relationship with the external space. So the building doesn't really feel like that you're hemmed in in the corner of the site that doesn't have a relationship with a garden. And it's 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 really amazing a resource for the uh, the people um, live nearby. So our building was pushed up against the neighboring wall. So it almost create like old idea of orangery. It's a sunny spot and you have a glazed facade and, and you're looking at the, your garden, but inside is warm and you can have a cup of tea. You know, obviously there are a lot more other concerns like a number of staffings and all that kind of consideration. But when we actually started doing the project, it was far more than just trees were the constraints. And obviously it's a heritage site and we have um, a lot of conversations with the heritage officer, conservation officer, make, make sure that we're doing enhancing the setting rather than uh, just contrasting for the sake of contrasting. We also found the World War II bunker down at the basement level uh, while we're digging started hitting concrete and we identified as uh, some kind of a pathway and a relatively sizable bunker underneath. So the project started with a quite a pure rectangle and then we identified areas that we had concerns that some gymnastic might have to happen. And the reason why the building actually have a semicircular cut is to protect the lime tree in front of it. So we have the foundation is put in just outside of its root protection zone. So, and also when we were cutting around that, that we had a watching brief for the aviculturalist to be present on site. If we see any major root, we bridge that over. And when we actually hit the bunker, that was a whole other story. This is no way of bridging it or, or anything like that. So we ended up just raising the entire floor plate. That's why there's, <laughs> three or four steps in the middle of it. But rather than using that as like, oh my God, it's a constraint, we can't do anything about it. We use that as a squeezing moment of the building. And we told client, now we have opportunity to split the building in halves if it's necessary. And we found this amazing hinges that you can hang these large doors, large pivot doors, and they are secured with magnet and the building can be split in half. They can lease out the, the bottom end and then they can use the top end. So the building became more flexible. Now the bottom end is used for so many different things. Lots of baby related program. I never thought I will see that many prams in, in one location. They have MP surgery. They do like all kinds of therapies in there. They have yogas and they have reading sessions. They have artist takeovers. You name it, they have it. 
Yeah, yeah, when I was there, a load of babies and their parents had arrived. Um, the veranda sheltering all their buggies. And they were all sat around in a big circle while a woman from the council led them all in song. Yep. Um, although mostly the parents singing rather than the babies. And then the, at, the, at the other end of the, the space, up the stairs, there was somebody working on their laptops and books around. Some people seemed to, it seemed that they were having a business meeting. How were you thinking about the use of the, of the space when you were designing? I have a lot of thoughts about the civic infrastructure. Well, something that we call civic infrastructure. I guess there's a bit of a jargon. There's something that we as a citizen that we share in this city or in this in this country um, as a common spaces. And libraries were one of those things has been heavily invested during a certain time of the history of this country. And we were always curious how it can be more utilized and it's welcoming to people. Now, now we know, especially pandemic, accentuated the difference in how we actually work and how we actually interact and what we actually need to learn and, and to communicate to one another. Also, when you go to more deprived area, the building stocks are tend to be smaller. That means children's or, or adults occupying those houses don't tend to have their private spaces often. So I really wanted this library to show some possibility that while maintaining traditional functionality of library of quiet space, the contemplation, the reading, and the way you access very much of uh, the physical uh, containment of knowledge, I wanted to bring another space that people can bring their other way of communicating, whether they're friends, they are talking to other people, because in the library, you don't feel like you can talk to one another. But if you have enough distance, enough sound separation, then that's allowed. And library can offer free internet to um, the people and really cheap and good coffee with your library card. And it's, it's quite amazing that the library used to open from Wednesday till Friday because take-up was relatively low between, I think, 10, 11 till 5. So it's a relatively short time. And they were having uh, just under 3,000 people visiting per month. The, after the new extension has been built, it's now open seven days a week from 8 o'clock till 7 o'clock in the evening. And often it's hired out for different community events. And it's now, I believe, hitting like 20,000 uh, people a month a visit. So from 3,000 to 20,000 within space of a year, it's pretty good, I think, um, in terms of usage. That's incredible, um, Jay. That's really... Can can this small space accommodate these numbers? Well, I mean, it's um, it's pretty extraordinary that the, the, this mere 250 square meters, how it's actually used, because it's constantly programmed, not just by the council, but the community groups as well. They just a constant shift of community activities happening in, in the garden, in the front room, in the back room, and even library is now utilized for the um, community gathering for different, different sorts. So as a designer, did you get involved in thinking about the programming early on? Were you able to influence that or this has all just come about as a result of the project? Well, it's, I think what I have contributed as a designer is giving them the cues how these spaces can be used. 
and how it can be separated and what they could invite into without the fear of clashing. We can't prescribe what people should be doing. Yeah. We can only show the glimpse of the possibilities. I don't like the sentiment that the space allows you something. It's just that people can take their own ownership in their own way. It just just be quite warm and inviting space. It's quite extraordinary after the school hours, if you go there, how many children are with their parents studying together. And me talking to like several parents and, and I was saying, you know, that there were a couple of incidents, the mothers of these young children in their teenage group and, and came up to me while I was talking to me, you know, they found out I'm the architect and they actually cried um, at how they're grateful about that this space, they can actually get out of the house, they have a place that they can actually meet and they can teach their children what they wanted to teach. And it's it's having that extra space and a place that they can meet their friends and uh, in a very safe environment, I guess, the Widow Garden. They were particularly taken by the quality that they can feel in, in the building. It They said, I think they, one of them, the word was, I can't remember exactly, but that they don't feel they're neglected anymore. So let's talk about the timber in this building, which is extremely varied, many different types. Can you talk us through the story of how you source the timber and its many different applications in the building? I'm very interested where we get our materials and all sorts, not just a timber, but pretty much everything, really. But timber is something that I had a lot of opportunity to get my hands on because, you know, for various reasons, we're doing a lot of small buildings and it was um, often temporary. And, you know, we were using a lot of malleable and renewable material and the timber is on the high on the list on that. The idea of using the, the recycled timber started very long time ago. One of our earliest projects, The Longest Bench, we worked with a timber yard called Ashwell Timber, who happened to have a crazy number of sea groins that has been pulled out during the 70s, just rotting in the back of yard. So we basically used all the benches made out of the sea groins, literally came out from the southeast coast to make the bench in the south, southeast in coast. In Little Hampton, I love that bench. Yeah, in Little Hampton. They were like tropical hardwoods that you no longer can get in the market. And, you know, the, uh, the fabricators were complaining that, that they have to change their saw. They have to sharpen their saw so, so often because they're so hard to cut, which is amazing gift to the project. At the same time, we, I think we emptied like quarter of their stock with that project. Anyway, from then on, I, I was very keen to reusing things and don't, demolish things unless you have a really, 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 really good reason. And often you don't. <laughs> I was actually walking through London Field. This is close to a decade ago now, um, when I was uh, much younger. And they were cutting down a rather large tree, a London plane tree. And, and I was like, what are you going to do with this? I was asking the tree surgeon and he said, oh, it's just going to go to this timber yard, the waste waste ground somewhere in Hertfordshire, and then it'll just be pulped or it's just going to become a firewood. And I was like, no way. 
And then the conversation kind of like started. I was speaking to my furniture making friend. It's like, is there any use? Is is London plane any good? And and they tend to split, so they need to treat it in a certain way. And what what happens with all these trees? And then I found out it's quite difficult to use those those timber in private project because you can't get your hands on it because it's owned by council and and local authorities and. There's no sales channel that you can you can buy. For the public project, it's difficult to use because it doesn't have any certification. A chain of custody is not written down, even though we know where it's come from. It's it was a bit 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 mad, just chasing after the the paper trails and how you can get your hands on. Yeah, it's a catch twenty um, two. Well, yeah, exactly, exactly. And a decade, decades later, now, you know, I was talking to um, Sebastian Cox, um, to who I've been collaborating for quite a long time, and I was like, "Hey, Seb, how about we, if we make some furniture, and some building like internal spaces with the um, trees that, you know, comes out from parks and and streets?" I was like. Yeah, that would be interesting because he what he does is he go into his client's land and and when there is a tree has been fallen, he will make a furniture out of that. So he has skills, and and he has a methodology, and we've been talking about this for for quite a long time. And I wanted to use that model to the public project in this library project, and it was surprisingly cost effective. But we had to convince some internal process that yes, this. Timber does not have FSC certification, and your guidance I understand says it need to have certification. But we can prove the chain of custody by just looking at your internal document of where this tree is came from and where it ended up. How did it work in terms of the sort of logistics and kind of getting it into the building and the sort of timings and sawmills and things like that? So they are kiln dried, so we got the mobile kiln. We stationed it at the timber yard. We selected the timber, the size of the timber that we want, and you will be amazed by quality and the the girth of these this timber. I mean, you can get massive planks out, beautiful, absolutely stunning. It's all about document control. It's all about making sure people know what responsibility lies where and how those are managed, and making sure that each party have a firm agreement. That they won't finger point at each other. It's all about doing rather than thinking of the idea. I think thinking of ideas are quite simple. If you can't really go through all that process and convince everyone, and this can be delivered in this way, cheerleading through, it's just really difficult to make it happen. Through all the sort of public sector bureaucratic processes, must be, yeah, must yeah, be. Yeah, well, but the thing is, it's not. It's something that we all have to deal with because public sector requires accountability. I'm not finger pointing public sector; it's it's wrong thing. It's just something that we all just have to work with because it requires credibility and accountability. But the the paperwork's in a the, those framework is a relatively blunt tool. So the talking about what is actually guide. Guideline: What is the bottom line, and what is the spirit of this policy? Was the really the heart of the conversation? When you're in the space and looking at the richness and variety of the of the timber in terms of their appearance, there seems to be both a kind of informality 
to the look of it, that it really suits the different kind of uses that are in the space. But then also a kind of, I don't know, enjoyment of the aesthetic opportunities of working in a, with materials in a more sustainable way. There's a sort of sign of kind of aesthetic opportunities in working in this kind of way. Yeah, and I mean, how many species did we end up using? Something like 28 different species in counting is probably more. It's kind of weird thing because we are educated as an architect and a designer, we're educated to have full control of your design and your material appearance and how they are put together, which is in reality, I mean, I'm not going to swear on the recording, but you know, you know what I what I can say on that kind of things. I assume all our listeners are adults, so they probably understand exactly what I'm talking about. But when you go through this kind of process, your control of the design is trajectory, not finite, minute details, and you need to be totally ready to change the mind change the output, change the situation to suit the requirement. Because sometimes things happen and, you know, you just have to make the decision there and then. So I had a few strategies. A, united color of Benetton approach. This needed to be organized, but random, slightly organized mess. But I had the option A, if there are too many pale one comes out, what do we do? If too many darker one comes out, what do we do? You know, all that kind of things is in my head, just option B's and C's and D's and E's just in my back pocket and then just you know, play with it. I think it came out as well as I thought it could. There are certain areas I look at as like, ooh, I could have changed some of that. But then it wasn't really all my decision eventually. So did you have to be on site more or you had worked with Sebastian enough to be able to kind of trust that it was going to be okay. Sebastian is a fully, fully trustworthy. His eye to details as a furniture maker is up there, really, mm -hmm. really up there. But when you work with general contractors and carpenters, I'm not, I'm not saying their skills are short, but their skills are honed to do a slightly different approach that it requires more conversation on site. So I've, I've been to site a few times laying things out together with them. So this is a kind of the feel I'm going for. And then if you run out of things and if it doesn't quite make sense to you, just take photograph and send it to me. I will either come over or it's like we can have a conversation. So I didn't want them to have that pressure that is on them. I said, don't worry, this is on me. Just let's just try to figure this out together. It's trust in the relationship. Yeah. Trust is a big one that's come out in a mm. lot of our other conversations talking about new ways of working. Was there a cost uplift for doing this this way? Well, depending on how you organized it. But as I mentioned, we separate your contract completely. Right. So for the contractor, what they have specified of their, their role was exactly the same. They didn't have any unforeseen circumstances. For Sebastian, we are working to the budget. And he had a control of that budget and hour because the, he was actually designing with me and manufacturing it, installing it. And, and we had a quite high degree of control. That's really interesting. So do you see a way forward for 
doing more of this? Is, do you think this can be, I don't know, mainstreamed or increased this reuse of, of timber in this way? Well, I don't know. Because, well, one, it's not everyone's cup of tea. Two, probably it sometimes requires slightly different skill set as what we're trained as an architect. So it's more um, bespoke, almost furniture making. Oh, this is completely, this, this is a very completely bespoke. Yeah, you need to have a kind of different control. That you, that the, in exchange of letting go of some, some design control, you need to have a really good grasp of contract control and communication control because that leads to design if you know what I mean. So in the bigger practice that you're working in the team, and I, I don't know how you can systemize this quite yet. Now there's a company called Sonder Seasoning. I think they have a new, new name um, that does exactly this. Now you can buy the planks from that yard that I was talking about in Hertfordshire. It's available for the furniture maker to purchase. But because it became product, it's not cost effective for many things now. <laughs> so the long side of the building looking out onto the garden faces kind of east, northeast, and it's shaded by the veranda. So it's got a layered but visually open transition between inside and outside. And this also helps shade the building from overheating. So what was your approach to thermal comfort and the energy use of the building? high priority. I mean, really, really high priority. That facade is actually looking onto the southeast um, okay. facade. The glazing is facing southeast facade. But great thing is having this majestic size of the trees. They are, are fully covering those glazing. I mean, it's like fully, fully, fully covering during the height of the summer, springs and, and autumn when they're slightly sparse. The overhang, which is a connecting element of the building and people can walk through the building without getting wet, pr provides the, uh, enough solar shading to mitigate solar gain. And during the winter, because the trees drop their leaves, it penetrates through all the way in to the building to heat up the, the slab. So uh, we insulated this building as much as we can within the limitation of the envelope extremities and try to eliminate as many layers as possible because more layers more things go wrong we don't want to do that i believe it's actually the performing far better than they expected so we've done the one year uh, calculation of energy use i think the ribas i think 20 30 targets uh, we were far below that in terms of the, the energy usage per square meter and also because the timber has been used as a reclaim, then it's, it's all superstructures, timber, and everything's timber, timber, timber. It's embodied carbon is incredibly low. I firmly believe the sustainability, concern towards sustainability and energy use is not a tick box ticking exercise, as we are way, way beyond that. It, it needs to be the heart of the every single project. How has your work evolved, say, since 2019 with kind of heightened awareness of climate emergency. You've made a shift from kind of small pavilions to lots of public realm work, mixed use social housing, and now the library. Is there anything you're doing differently now that you're working on larger projects and everybody's focused on this, including yeah, clients I mean, even? 
So I, I studied at Bath for the first half of my part one, and then I studied in Delft, and then I, I got job at Bennett's Associates, a rap and Denise, who I'm very close friends with. Their sustainability agenda and their mindset was, you know, way up there. But ever yep. since they started their practice, and their the Wessex Water project was always, you know, the one of my key key project that I discussed when I was a student. I don't like throwing things away. I don't like wasting bits. I guess that's just my personality. So I never thought sustainability is something that is a marketing tool or anything like that. Obviously, you know, when I design something, I want it to be reused. I don't want to design something that is single use. If I'm designing something for a client, obviously I want them to use less energy. Less energy equals less money. And I obviously I want them to be able to use less maintenance requirements, because I am doing the service to my client. I think attitude towards sustainability just became more concrete, and I have a better understanding. It's a very very complicated thing, the sustainability, the world, and I don't really subscribed into any band of this is right and that's wrong. I, every single project for me is different, and I try to assess with what this project is required, and what the sustainability means for this particular project, and that means timber is not the best solution all the time, concrete is not the best solution all the time, steel is not the worst, you know, the situation all the time. It's all have its own balance, and I think for me. Getting that balance is more important, and making sure that whatever I design, I mean, designing and building is by nature carbon-heavy process. Living as a human being is a carbon-heavy process. You know, we don't want to go down to Thanos roots and you know, click half of human disappears. It's all about making things in in balance. So I think as I get older. Slightly more relaxed about the design term of the delivery, and making sure that certain criterias are met. So whatever I put out in the world has its purpose beyond what is initially set out for. So one of the strands of your practice, and probably what people first think of when they think of Studio Weave, is a series of objects and sculptures and pavilions designed to be inviting and engaging and often quite playful. But you've managed to not be typecast into just doing this. So how have you managed to grow a widespread of different kinds of projects and be trusted to deliver more sort of serious projects as well? Hmm. Good question. Because I have no idea. <laughs> I mean, being you know very very frank and honest, it just um, um, I I wasn't a qualified architect when we started doing projects, and then I became qualified architects. Twelve years ago, it, um, exactly. Now I'm just ticking over, you know,、um, over the other side. And the doing buildings, designing buildings, obviously requires a lot of trust and trusted people. And、uh, as a someone that who came to this country and became British, the, my network and the the level of proudness to the network, it's not same as who was born and and raised up here. So it probably took slightly unconventional route. I was incredibly fortunate to have those opportunities to design 
things in the world to quite a public way, but you're right. It's it's. I think it's still quite difficult for us to be understood as a proper, and I'm using quote mark proper architects doing. Again, I'm going to use a quote mark serious buildings because I don't know what that actually means. But I guess the people now have seen enough of what we do and give us a little bit of more opportunity. But hopefully, we have more opportunity to design, maybe you know, in terms of bigger scale of the project in in various different setting. I do understand the clients and clients groups concerned that they want safe pair of hands. Unless you're a professional client uh, working on several delivery of building at the same time as a developer. It, the cultural project we're working on, most of people will do maybe two, three, even you're a CEO level in their lifetime. So yeah, I do, I do understand their concern, but I think, I, I think we're, we're, we're okay. Um, we can, we can design and deliver buildings. <laughs> <laughs> so Jay, what's your view about the agency of an architect and your ability to make change? For me, it's, uh, it's, it's more about our agency as a citizen with a certain skill. And I don't particularly bind that with the profession of being an architect. If you're an architect, you provide service. You provide service to the client to a way that your best ability. And as a citizen and as a, someone that, who live in, in this world, that you are in, in tandem with your profession, pure functionality, of an architect with your personal uh, thoughts and, and your moral um, the baselines. So before we wrap up, um, tell us a little more about your own journey coming to the UK at age 13 from South Korea. Why architecture? And you've mentioned the places you studied, you've mentioned working at Bennett's. What were sort of the key turning points along the way that you would say have gotten you to where you are? today? Ooh, accidents, 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 accidents. <laughs> I would love to be able to say they're controlled accidents, but um, uh, mostly not. <laughs> um, serendipity. So, yeah, well, I mean, I think serendipity might be a little bit too grand and fancy word for even for that. It's more, I think it's a little bit more haphazard mm. than the serendipity. Um, it's, it's interesting. So um, I came over because I had an opportunity to study here as a scholarship student. My parents are Catholic. They're still practicing Catholic. Um, I, I'm not um, practicing Catholic, but I, I had the opportunity to go to boarding school, Catholic boarding school, uh, through entry examination and got the um, scholarship to be here. I came from very rural background in, in South Korea shall we say, very different level of a working class. And that was incredible um, the opportunity for me and my brother to be able to do that. way that I have chosen architecture, um, again, it, it wasn't because I wanted to do architecture. There is a quite a good reason for that. It provided um, the course setup that I can remain UK long enough to become permanent resident. I don't know how, whatever I explained this, how, how people would take it. Uh, but that's, that's really, really honest truth. Um, well, it I was very panned out. 
Yeah, well, I guess so. Um, I was very, very good at maths. I was very good at naturally physics, and uh, I was I was good at art. So a career advisor would say, "Well, you probably can do medicine or architecture." Those were only two courses that long enough that I could legally stay in the country long enough to gain indefinite leave to remain. Okay. Now cat's out of the bag. Now everyone knows. And then I went to Bath, and again the reason I went to Bath was they offered me scholarship. And during my study at Bath as a scholarship student, I became resident in in UK. And then I went to Delft, and that I I, I that that was such a free moment that that I wasn't bound by you know um, all the arrangement the financially that I'm kind of dodging and yeah I came back to London completely broke and got a job at Bennett Associates that was lucky I came back with really long hair I still have long hair but like the colored blue and I turned up in my interview in my shorts and flip-flops and Denise interviewed me and yeah we had a good chat but they somehow saw something beyond that Dutch tainted facade <laughs> and hired me. I had a great time there. You initially set up Studio Weave with Smith Mordack. Before I went back to university, me and Smith had the opportunity to submit a proposal for London Architecture Biennale. I think in 2004, maybe. And our submission was selected to be built. And we had to raise money and, and all that. And I was like, oh, I don't want to spend a whole year just doing this. I need to either earn money or I have to, to finish my university so I can earn money. So both, both myself and Smith used, used that project to be qualified as a, our architectural submission for the university. Bath, unfortunately, could not accommodate that uh, because their system is slightly different. And we met Robert Mull. He has been again, quite a big influence in my, my career path. He started this thing called the free unit in, in London Met. And he said, yep, we probably can do a degree students because he set that up as a master, um, like diploma students, but um, he accepted us as a part one. It was a huge gamble, huge gamble for him, huge gamble for us, but luckily we, we passed. And then we stayed on with Robert doing free unit. So we delivered uh, the Freya's cabin. We delivered longest bench while we're studying. Yeah, but the studio we've just started haphazardly in, in that way. I but mean, with the free unit as a sort of launch pad or sort of incubator to help you kind of get going in a, in a way. Yeah, because I, I either had to quit university to do those work and have a job or be at the university and do those in support of university. My thought when I started university was, okay, let's get indefinite remain, let's get a job and let's work here for, for a few years, then I probably can have a British passport. And that means I probably can freely go back to South Korea with the anchor here and then, you know. But as it happens, I became Londoner and stuck to London for, I don't know, it's, that's, that's 18 years ago now, 19 years ago. And here I am doing podcast with you <laughs> so back to today jay what's what have you got in your pipeline of work now we have actually 
quite a lot of building project at the moment in various scale. The project we're just finishing is so we have a deep, deep retrofit barn in Isle of Wight. We're converting cowshed into three bedroom family home. Yeah, well, at some point I probably show you Hattie or what it's looked like. We did not touch anything existing. Everything is exposed uh, because we didn't put any layers of covering. And we have the community center that we're working with at Nottingham Genesis in Collindale. We have Finsbury Circus with the City of London. The tender has returned. We're negotiating the final bits and bobs with a contractor. That's going to hit site within next a month or two. We're designing quite large scale market canopy. This is 80 meter long, um, the market canopy down in Lewisham. And we recently won quite an amazing job called the Vestry House. It's 18th century local museum up in Waltham Forest. We are bringing it back to life in the contemporary museum for the community use again. Oh, and also uh, we designed social house on the top of Hackneywick Station, which will be hitting site very soon, probably get delivered in four years time because it's a massive. Fantastic pipeline with a really interesting range of range of work. As long as I keep happy and work with happy people and be useful and be useful for my loved ones and be useful for the society some way, hopefully, then that's great. Well, thank you, Jay. I think that's what we're all after. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Our next guest is Lauren Shovels. Lead Retrofit Innovation and Delivery Officer at Westminster City Council and a co-founder of ACAN, the Architects Climate Action Network. You can find the show notes for this episode at www.architectsjournal.co.uk forward slash podcasts, where you can also catch up with all our previous episodes. If you're enjoying Climate Champions, please subscribe and do rate us on your favorite podcast platform. It helps people find us. Thanks. Thanks.